On the Riabu podcast today, we are taking a deep breath as we look at Chinese investors, and in particular, the predicament they're in, having invested in all sorts of companies over the last year or so. The chickens are proverbially coming home to roost. Much of the debt that Chinese companies issued is falling due at the end of this year. About 3.65 trillion yuan, about 530 billion US dollars of notes mature at around the time that we raise our glasses to 2021. And <laughs> good riddance to 2020, I might add. What does this have to do with SMEs? I hear you ask. Well, the question that Simon Littlewood and I are about to debate. Is exactly what is it that the large companies that are in a position to issue bonds? What are they doing in order to overcome the debt burden that they have, so that their investors don't face delinquencies on the one hand? In other words, that they don't leave their investors hanging out to dry, but on the other hand, that they are able to maintain business and reduce their expenditure on debt as much as possible. Hello, Simon. So. Um, it sounds all very apocalyptic, doesn't it? When you when you read some of these eye-watering numbers,、uh, the amount of delinquencies by the end of December, according to Bloomberg, 72 billion yuan, which, if you do your maths、uh, fairly quickly, will tell you is into the tens of billions of U.S. dollars.、Um, what's interesting is that the government in China has encouraged companies to do a number of things in order to keep the wolves from the door. Don't you just love this podcast? We're into all sorts of analogies and metaphors today,、um, and among those things that they're asking companies to do is, for example, refinance their debt, maybe pay off their shorter duration bonds with the proceeds of longer duration bonds, or drumroll, please, make sure that they pay their bills later. What can we in the SME space learn from all of this, Simon? Well, I think what we're actually looking at is a catharsis. We're looking at a cleansing here, because if you look at the way that the Chinese government reacted in the first part of this year, they were basically trying to sweep everything under the carpet. They they, they put pressure on on lenders, you know, not not to, on investors not to ask for their interest payments.、Uh, they encouraged borrowers to just roll their bondholders just ro roll the debt over. Um, just to keep things on an even keel. What we're looking at now, though, is the government's clearly ready in China now to allow、uh, some things to fail.、Um, and I think there's a clear suggestion here that they think that the worst impact impacts of COVID in China are over. That's the way that I'd read this. So they are trying to do a clean up. And as with any clean up related to debt, you know, there's been a massive and very rapid growth in Chinese debt,、um, in particular in corporate bonds. Um, and it's going to be the private corporate bonds probably that suffer because the ones that are gilt-edged, government-related, there's always plenty of money. Governments never run out of money, do they? Because <laughs> it's other people's money.、Um, well, they're sitting at the source. They private bondholders, printing machines a bit more. And, and if you remember, particularly when it comes to foreign investment in Chinese bonds, and I've got to rack my memory here, but the main investment because there's. There are strong limitations on what foreign foreigners are allowed to invest in, and that most of the bonds that you can invest in are property related. And of course, the Chinese property market has been massively hit by COVID because all sorts of activities have been diminished. Yeah, so among the private debt, probably、uh, real estate investment companies are going to be the worst hit. So you're going to see delinquencies,、um, and They're they're discouraging from some companies from directly rolling over their debt, which is very interesting. So they're actually expecting there to be something of a clean out.
well, all governments are having to do that at some point, right? Because the, the gravy train can't roll on forever, where there's enormous government handouts ad nauseum to the extent where, well, there's nothing left in the kitty. So is that yes? But, is that, yeah, that ought to be true, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, but then you know, having prophesied, I think five years ago, I mean, I recall I was prophesying that all this would come to a sticky end as governments decided not to print money anymore. And you may recall, if we look at the U.S. for a moment, at the beginning of Trump, uh, he was okay with the debt washing through, and then uh, and what happened is, if you remember, the, the Fed raised interest rates, and then he immediately lent on them to unraise them when he saw when he saw what had happened, right? Um, so, so I don't know. How long can governments kick the can down the road? I think probably longer. It, would be my guess. But it's still a balancing act. I mean, if you're if you're if you've got your hands on the lever of the economy, then you, on the one hand, you don't want to now have so much money in the system where it starts to bring about inflation, as too much money chases too few goods and services. On the other hand, you don't want to be in a situation where you pull the brakes on too fast because then all sorts of people will start uh, to, to really suffer. Um, and so finding that right balance between taking away enough of the punch bowl but not so that the party comes to a grinding halt. Or, or the rate really that difficult. you allow it to be cleaned out because I think it's pretty common knowledge that there are big chunks of the Chinese economy where there's massive spare capacity. I mean, the residential, residential real estate market, um, parts of the, of the uh, corporate real estate market, um, and uh, lots of other areas, you know, th there's stuff that if you put pressure on people um, would turn out to be debt that isn't being serviced, right? Um, but you don't want, if you're a government, I mean, the Singapore government's facing a similar issue, really, which is that if you let all the businesses that are really not functioning go bust, uh, you'd, have a, you'd have not just a crisis of unemployment and a crisis of insolvencies, but you'd have a banking crisis because nobody would be able to pay their mortgage. Um, so to some extent, if you're going to pull back from this and let the debt get cleared up and the bad debt fail and the companies that are overborrowed fail, you, you've got to manage it. You've got to, you've got to choreograph it, really, mm. so that you can. it doesn't look too bad because you don't want there to be a political crisis or a crisis of confidence. Um, you don't want it to look too bad, nor do you want the impact to be too toxic on things like um, employment or whatever. Mm. Well, to continue the analogy, it takes two to tango. Oh my God, this is really <laughs> terrible today. I think we need to restart. But the fact is that, you know, if you are at the levers of your own SME, mm. you've got 20, 30, 50 staff, up to 200 in Singapore, you, you, you are uh, categorized as an SME, then you're probably not going to wait around for to see what the government will do in order to wind back the inevitable, and that is wind back some of those rent subsidies. What can you as an SME then learn, looking at some of the big money in town, you know, those large companies that are able to issue billions of dollars or billions of yen in this case, worth of debt. What can you learn from the way that they are managing their debt burden? Uh, well, government. <laughs> it's a hard one because we see that, you know, the delinquencies in China fell in the f year on year in the first half of this year. And they, that wasn't because businesses were healthier in the first half of this year. It's because the government decided they didn't want all of that happening with all the other bad news. You've kind of got a bit of that everywhere. Everywhere where there's a government, where there are government programs to put money into companies that might otherwise be hollow, dead men walking, if you like, um, is, is, is inevitably going to lead to a crisis of decision. Does the state continue to run the economy by borrowing money, which, the, which 
wage payers in the future will have to repay? Um, or do we let things slide and do we countenance significant unemployment and all those kinds of things? China is very averse to um, political risk. So uh, they are going to want to support employment and stability to the utmost extent possible, I would have thought. Okay, so can we maybe take these three points about what the government in China is proposing to its companies and see how we can apply that to SMEs anywhere? Uh, refinance your debt. I mean, is, as simple as, is it as simple as ringing up your bank and saying, hey, you know you that, that loan I've got outstanding, can we just extend it by a few well, years? Well, depending on we'll what business you're in and, and why you've had to borrow money in the first place, I mean, take a look at your balance sheet. If, 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 if you have money invested in inventory that isn't going anywhere, for example, you might want to turn that into cash, even if you have to take a loss on it. Uh, you know, if you have, and we've talked about receivables a great deal, if you have money invested in receivables, but you've taken the easy option of borrowing money, and in China there's lots of ways you can do that, you know. You, um, you mean factoring those invoices? Well, it's not even factoring, there are, there are, it's, it's just straightforward, you know, you take things like post-dated checks and the bank lends you the, you know, the, the value, that's been going on for years and years and years, the trouble is we know, that has a limit, you know. What we're talking about here though is we're talking about corporate bonds, so we're talking about companies, most of whom will be a fair size, not huge though necessarily in China, where you're actually borrowing money in the form of bonds, investors buy the bonds, you pay a relatively low interest rate for the bonds, but that gives you large amounts of capital that you can bring into your company. The problem with that is, as we've said before, it's not sustainable unless you can actually pay the interest and then repay the loan at the end of the day. But it's also not sustainable if you're using that debt, and that's the suggestion here, to plug a gap in a balance sheet, which is caused by the basic failure of your business to generate enough cash to actually run itself day to day. And part of that might be that your customers aren't paying you. Um, but we haven't got data on receivables here, but we know from lots of anecdotal evidence that there is massive um, Ill illiquidity in big chunks of Chinese industry, particularly among SMEs, many of whom folded in the first part of this, this COVID crisis. Okay, but again, looking at SMEs globally, not yeah. just in China, can you just rock on to your bank manager and say, I'd like to refinance my debt, please? Um, what do you need to show if you do that? What do you need? What will the bank manager ask you for? Yes, I mean, uh, I think we have to separate China from other places because because what banks can do in China is is a matter of government policy. If if if, if the Chinese government leans on banks to make money available, you'll be able to get money. Good. So let's leave aside China. What but, can you do? Can you go to the bank manager? One of the big issues for. And, and we've looked at this because you and I, you know, we looked at some data earlier in the year, which revealed that a significant percentage of SMEs that go and want to borrow money don't get it. And the reason for that is that however cheap the money that they're getting is, and banks in Singapore were given a ton of money by the government for half a percent, was it, or was it 0.1%, is they still have their own rules, which, which are in the constitution of the bank, which require that anyone that they lend money to satisfies certain risk criteria. So if this is a company that's trying to borrow money from you, even if it's cheap money from somewhere else, if they don't look from the, the data that you've got on their balance sheet that they actually have a viable business, or if they're massively overborrowed already, or if uh, there are other reasons, or they have a history of very late payment from their customers or whatever, even though you've been given very cheap money to lend to them, your internal rules are gonna prevent you from doing it. That's, that, that's been the problem in, in Singapore, for example. 
A bank can't suddenly say, oh, well, never mind, let's throw caution to the winds, we'll lend money to anyone, <laughs> because we happen to have a lot of money. You can't do that. That's not how banks work, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Would be nice. So, but can you go to the bank manager and say, yes, I have a whole bunch of debt? But I'd be very they, happy if banks behave like that. I mean, um, I think we all would be. Yeah. But you know, just uh, hand me a lot of cash, and I will refinance it. I will pay off the previous loan, and uh, and take out new debt. Is that even an option? Um, well, it, I mean, no. In the, you know, I, if you have corporate borrowing, um, and it's on a sort of basis of a two or three year term, then yes, they will refinance that commonly. Why wouldn't they? You know, because it just means that that's what banks love. Is they just mm -hmm. keep rolling it forward and you're paying them fees and you're paying them interest and that's what they love, right? Yes. The, the problem here is, un, is that in a normal world, all things being equal, they want to lend that money to companies that have an underlying business model which is actually functional. The problem is that in China as elsewhere, post-COVID, there are a lot of businesses that probably aren't actually viable. So if you lend money to them or if you give them subsidy, they might accept it, but how likely are you to get it back? Not very, right? Right. Okay, so yes, you can go to your bank manager. He will want to see your balance sheet. He will want to see that you don't have a, you're up to the gazoo in debt mm. and or receivables from your existing customers. Uh, can you, going on to the second thing that the Chinese government is asking lenders to do, accept payment delays? I mean, is there such a thing as going to the bank and saying, uh, like it is going to be the case in Malaysia in October, right when the moratorium on loan repayments ends, we'd like you to, we'd like to not pay you interest for a few more months. Is yeah, the, well, the these, these, the, these, of course, are bondholders. I think they're talking about, aren't they? I know, yeah. extrapolating to yeah. SMEs outside well, no, of China. No, no, I understand. You know, is, I mean, it's is, is it possible? Is is your bank manager really going to be amenable to you saying, I'd like you to? not receive any payments from me for Well, bank managers get lent on by governments, um, you know, to behave in particular ways. So that's one thing. But I mean, another thing is, is all the normal debt that you owe, you know, um, to your landlord and to others, because there's been lots of attempts to use moral suasion in Singapore and elsewhere to get landlords and, and other uh, creditors to um, defer or accept lower payments and so on and so forth. And generally, they've been fairly unreceptive to that because they figure, what the hell, you know? I want my money. In fact, that's a perfectly logical reaction. If you think things are going to get worse, it makes overwhelming sense to get your money now. Um, right. Well, it does. You, you, you take out what you can, you know? Well, the landlords would, uh, rather the, the, the tenants would argue that the landlord has still got the asset. I mean, the, the building, mm. the office building or whatever it is that you're renting from them, the industrial building, the warehouse, isn't going to go away. No. I mean, so the landlord is in a, in a much better position than you as the tenant, aren't they? Yes, I don't know that the landlords really care about that very much, though. Uh, of course, I mean... Yeah, but isn't it? Having a tenant who's got three or six months longer to pay the rent, better than no tenant at all for I the next 12 months? I come across a number of examples here where landlords have flatly refused to make concessions to tenants who are completely underwater, and the tenants have gone bust. So there is a, there is a mindset here, uh, which is I as, as a landlord... Because, of course, a lot of these landlords are incredibly wealthy. So well, you'd have to be in order to buy property. The old, te <laughs> yes, the old, the tenant, the old tenant defaults neither here nor there, you know, um, <laughs> for them. Um, but I don't. They're not used to that kind of flexibility because they, you know, they're quite predatory, really. I mean, the way the model works in, you know, certainly in retail and other areas is that you you offer relatively short, in, in global terms, relatively short commercial leases on property, and as soon as you have a business living in your property that's making money. Uh, you then massively ramp up the rent. And, uh, you know, 
the landlords are very do that in a very sophisticated way. In Singapore, they have, before they before they decide how much to increase the rent by, they have people that come and stand outside the restaurant, for example, and look at how many people are coming in, what the covers are, what the price is, so they can actually precisely work out and they model what their tenant is taking and how much money they're making. And, they just, and their objective is to basically take as much of that in increased rent as they can without actually forcing the business to go under. And sometimes tenants are so disgusted that they do. There have been lots of examples in Singapore of tenants thinking, you know, I'm just working for the landlord at the end of the day and just stopping, you know. Mm. Um, but there, there is an argument to say that actually the rent should be based on takings. So rather than, you know, charge an extortionate monthly fee irrespective of whether you've got business coming in, irrespective of whether the landlord is actually doing anything to market the mall or the property, um, that some flexibility built into a share of revenue is yeah. possibly fairer. No? Ah, that's very utopian. I mean, I think landlords like upside and no downside. Uh, you know, so start off at a fixed rent and then increase it as uh, recalibrate it as and when you can. That's the model. And of course, that served landlords in Singapore very well because they, until recently, uh, there had scarcely been anything approaching a recession. In the 30 years I've been here, there have been a couple of very short recessions and very small ones of a couple of percent, you know. So generally that model's worked pretty well, you know. You obviously weren't here in 1985, 1997, 98 or 2008, uh, 2009. Those weren't, those weren't serious recessions, not in global terms. And it wasn't really. They called it the Great Recession, 2008, well, the, the, Exactly, that's my point. Great Recession, yeah. Well, going back to the 1930s when you were born, clearly. <laughs> Great Recession is, you know, people, yeah, soup kitchens. <laughs> it was barely noticeable in Singapore, barely noticeable. And we had a 36% decline quarter on quarter in, in economic uh, growth. What was it, the first quarter of right, 2009? So with economic growth averaging at 5%, that's the difference between 5% growth and 3.5% growth, a 30% decline. So it sounds very dramatic, but it doesn't actually mean anything. Well, it was but, very okay, dramatic. But anyway, let's talk about that. Toad. Uh, you know, definitely nothing compared with what the, the post-COVID shakeout is likely to look like. And I mean, the real question coming out of this, and you know, what can we learn from China? Well, China's always been a bit exceptional because it's, it's monolithic. They can do what they want. They can make the banks do what they want. They can make the banks keep lots and lots of, in, of companies functioning when they don't really have a business model. I suspect that that will come down to your relationship with government or quasi-government, i.e. the ones that have those relationships, and that's a massive part of industry in China, yeah. will continue to be fed uh, and other less fortunate ones who are, who are private and independent and don't have any government backing will fold. That's what I suspect. Speaking of getting fed, uh, we need to head to lunch shortly. But just briefly before we, we do, um, the, this thing about issuing bonds, you know, always seems to be the realm of large companies. You know, the ones who can afford an investment banker who, who runs the book for you and then uh, farms out your, your bond. Isn't, isn't this something that an SME can also avail well, themselves of? that used to be true. What quantitative easing has done is it's totally changed the shape of that market. So not only are far more companies, have far more companies in the West anyway, being able to borrow money from corporate bonds, as opposed to just going to their bank for an overdraft, but because far more companies and types of company have been able to do that, the general quality, the grade of the bonds has declined and declined and declined and declined. When I last looked at it, which was last year, the percentage of corporate bonds which were well below investment grade was quite frightening. 
and, and those data are always exaggerated anyway, so in reality it was probably much worse. It used to be just a, pretty well all of those bonds were large companies that were thought to have a good future and so on and so forth, but we know how that works. You know, if you've got too much liquidity, you've got to find someone to borrow the money, so you start lowering the requirements of your borrower. And you can see the effect of that. It means that a lot of companies in the West were already significantly overborrowed even before uh, the impact of, uh, of COVID. And I stopped saying, as did other commentators, well, this can't last and, and somehow there's going to have to be a clean up because it appeared that it could. It appeared that governments could go on and on and on and on and on just printing money, irrespective of how. And there's a real question as to how, a real question as to how much of that, uh, to what extent is that artificial liquidity, which has gone on now for what, nearly two decades, um, actually propping up equities, real estate, and companies, including medium-sized companies that previously wouldn't have been able to borrow money, but have been able to borrow money, you know? So, um, are the, you actually going to answer my question? Uh, no, I'm, no, I'm enjoying myself too. I'm enjoying myself too much. I mean, yes. we live in an era of froth. <laughs> and uh, the beer has gone flat, if I can extend. <laughs> and everyone's pretending that it hasn't. Everyone's saying, mmm, good frothy beer, this. And uh, in reality... Uh, you mean it's just froth and there's no beer. <laughs> so, so once again, if you're an SME, do you have any options apart from factoring your invoice and giving up 12% of your margins, going to the bank for, a, for an overdraft or waiting for Donald Trump's paycheck? Only do I mean, business with customers who pay you in a timely fashion or, or in cash. Uh, where you can reduce your costs, particularly establishment costs. A lot of companies now are working from home, so do a deal and only occupy half of the office space that you currently do. Even if you work from the office, do a, an A-team, B-team thing, which a lot of my friends are doing, where in order to reduce COVID risk and reduce costs, you only have half your staff coming in on any one day and you alternate them, which means that you only need actually half the space. So cut, cut operating costs. Obviously, shed discretionary spend, like consultants and media advisors and people like that. Uh, you know, early Not on. Not the media advisors. <laughs> and uh, turn any assets that you have, especially working capital, like inventories and stuff like that, into cash, even if you have to take a loss on it, because cash is cash. And an asset, if you do go bust, an asset is pretty much worthless, right? Because it'll just be taken over by your creditors and valued at nothing. Um, and then and auctioned it. Yeah, and unreceivable. So I think, I mean, my general concern is, and we have talked about this quite a bit, that these really necessary steps are in many cases not being taken because people are being given free money. If you give people free money, they don't take responsibility for their situation. And I think there's probably quite a lot. In fact, if I'm honest, there's probably a bit of that going on in uh, one of my enterprises. But um, because the government puts money in your bank account, it subsidizes your salaries. Under those conditions, do you live in a slightly unrealistic atmosphere and you continue to hope for the best? Most companies are now saying it'll be astonishing if things go. The latest data that I have from the OECD is that we will not see uh, economic activity at October 2019 levels for more than two years, i.e. 2022, at the earliest. Right? Yep. Airlines by 2024, I yeah. was reading. So there's you know, unless governments continue to prime the pump, there is going to have to be a massive clean-up between now and then. How about some frothy beer for lunch? Buy gold, move to a higher floor, <laughs> and 
a higher floor, whatever floor. So you can well, save money on Well, because in case eggs. there's a tsunami as well. Oh, I mean, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we we should we should opt for the frothy beer. Thank you, Simon. Right. Thank you, Mark.